lost in the whirlwind of Harvard Academia. This is the Bipartisan Podcast. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome to an episode of the Bipartisan Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Swanson. I'm Luke Webster. And I'm Will Schrefferman. And we are sans Nathan today, but Will, you're back. Welcome back. It's good to have you here. Hope your hope your travels were good. Um, we have an exciting episode today. We're going to be talking about taxes. And we're also going to be talking about Mother Russia. So um, let's jump right into it today, talking about the winter storms in Texas last week. Now, if you were an American citizen, you know that last week was very wild in terms of weather. Freezing cold temperatures swept through the heart of the country, reaching all the way down to Texas and dropping several inches of snow um, to a foot of snow in some places across the Midwest and across various states in the South where snow usually doesn't happen. While this was generally handled as a normal storm in the upper Midwest, Southern states uh, who are not equipped to deal with these kinds of weather conditions um, struggled. Texas was hit especially hard. The cold conditions froze natural gas pipelines, coal plants, and a small percentage of the wind generation in the state. This decrease in supply combined with a massive surge in demand for both heating and electricity sent the grid into a tailspin with many people losing power for days on end as utility owners struggled to contend with the challenges the grid faced um, as a result of the storm and the decreased supply of natural gas. Also notable is the composition of the Texas energy grid that is called ERCOT. Uh, this grid is not subject to federal regulations, given that it is a power grid owned by the state of Texas, and some blame this lack of federal regulation as a part of the reason the state was hit so hard. In the aftermath, four members of the ERCOT board have resigned, and Texas Governor Greg Abbott has promised reform for the uh, regulatory body. There's also been no shortage of political controversy, with Republican leaders blaming the loss of power squarely on renewables and Democratic policies that are uh, advancing these um, these renewable energy sources, and Democrats have uh, hammered Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who was caught taking a flight to Cancun, Mexico after the storm ended and while the state was still recovering. There are a lot of aspects of this event ranging from climate change to energy policy and federal regulation, and I want to know what you all take from this event. So Luke, I know you had a lot of strong opinions on this, so I'm going to let you go first. Okay, so I, I... I feel like I have to 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 stick up for uh, the South. I mean, I'm from Kentucky; it's halfway the South, but um, I think that to bl to blame the uh, to blame the the state uh, the state regulated energy system as opposed to it being federally regulated uh, as to why there were so many problems in Texas, I think is um, convenient. Uh, in terms of uh, if you want the federal government to have more control over uh, energy legislation, I think that I think that the 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 simple fact of it is that the South is not really prepared for a type of snow that we saw. Um, I have not seen this type of snow personally here in Kentucky for a great many years, um, and. It's definitely something that only happens, you know, every 10 to 12 years. But I, I think that it's disingenuous to act as though Texas ha is just ready for a winter storm in the same way that, uh, you know, a state like Illinois is. Um, 
that being said, on the topic of Ted Cruz, was it politically, I don't know what the opposite word of savvy is, but was it politically uh, ill-advised to travel to Cancun afterward? Yes. And, uh, you know, one thing you pointed out, uh, Tyler, uh, you know, in our private conversations is that, you know, Beto O'Rourke uh, was making calls to seniors and, you know, trying to raise awareness during uh, this time where so many people were snowed inside. And, you know, Ted Cruz definitely could have been doing some of that. But at the same time, it's, I also feel like it's disingenuous to act as though Ted Cruz has some kind of magical control over the weather. It's not as though he can just look at and it just suddenly evaporates under the heat of his stare. Um, so I think that the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of the people that were trapped and a lot of the politicians in Texas were left without a whole lot of good options. Uh, just simply by not being prepared for the type of weather that came through. Yeah, definitely. Um, Will, I want to know uh, what you're what you're thinking on this. We haven't heard from you in a while on this show, and it's nice to have you back. Well, I I think the whole hoopla about Ted Cruz and the political nature of what happened in Texas, you know. Enough has been said about that on both sides that my, my opinion matters not. Um, but what I want to talk about is three words, a national energy grid. Uh, Tyler, you kind of alluded to this, but quick history lesson. Texas is a, a very secessionist state by nature. It was, in fact, its own little republic before it joined the country um, back in the 1840s. And... They've, they've never really liked the federal government that much. They even have it in their constitution that they're the only state that's allowed to secede from the union um, at any time that they wish. And in the 1930s, um, when electric utilities were really becoming mainstream across the United States and the New Deal was you know, expanding federal power across the country, Texas decided that its energy grid, it was not going to cross state lines. It was going to draw a grid nice and within Texas's state lines, and that's how we got ERCOT. And this is actually not the first time that there have been issues because of the fact that Texas's energy grid literally does not connect to the rest of the countries. Um, back in the, I was reading about how back in World War II, there were issues with the massive amount of energy that had to get transported back and forth through manufacturing. There was an issue. In the 70s, there was also a regulatory issue where they had import um, some electricity to, to Oklahoma, and may have run a rye of federal, or may have run afoul of federal regulations. And then in 2011, even there was an incident where Texas had to have rolling blackouts and ended up having to import power from Mexico. Um, so this was something that honestly I had been researching a little bit this summer as part of an internship I was doing. So it's not cool, I guess you could say that this is becoming mainstream and people are paying attention to this, but I think it's very interesting that a lot of people's attention are actually focused on the fact that why the hell does Texas have its own energy grid? And for that matter, the United States outside of Texas has two major separate energy grids on the, the Eastern interconnection and the Western interconnection. Um, but it's wildly inefficient just to have three totally separate, or not totally separate, but mostly separate energy grids that don't talk to one another, especially in a world where we're going to have a lot of for example, offshore wind energy, where the turbines might be concentrated in the northeast, 
but hey, what if we could get that power inland towards other states? We need an interconnected energy grid. Um, there's also there's another project going on. I think it's called the Grain Belt Express that would go from my beautiful home state of Indiana all the way through um, bringing wind power through Illinois and Missouri um, and allowing power to be transported quickly so that we could really actually see the benefits of renewable energy. So my, my big hope is that this, it's not going to happen, but I hope that as people are paying attention to this, we realize that it doesn't make a lot of sense to have disjointed energy grids in this country and that we could literally connect them and that would save money. There was a, there was a study I really liked that I was reading this summer that described how for every dollar we spend on energy integration in long-term costs, consumers end up saving, it ends up being creates a lot of jobs. It would stop future issues like this. If one state or one part of the grid down, it can all support itself. It just seems like such a good idea. And I, I you know, I'm excited that it may have entered the mainstream a little bit. So that that's my completely apolitical takeaway. Yeah. So I like Will, what, what would you say? Oh, sorry. Okay. Sorry to take you, cut you off. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Luke. Go ahead. Um, so Will, obviously, I mean, I don't know if I hold this position myself per se. I'm not exactly an expert on the nature of power grids and all that that uh, jazz. But, you know, I think for, that some people have uh, apprehensions about that uh, from a security standpoint in that if all the grid is connected together, it'd be really easy to just take it all out in one, in one go. Um, that being said, like, I think the example that I'm thinking of, which is not necessarily a power grid, more of a cellular grid, but when there was that uh, explosion in uh, downtown Nashville, uh, my cell service went out for a day and a half uh, and I was in Kentucky. So I think that I don't know. I don't know if like a similar issue could arise where something happens to, you know, a major power plant or something like that and a bunch of the country loses power as opposed to just some of it. No. So if anything, it makes that problem less of an issue. So say, for example, something goes down in Texas. Right now, you're not able to transport in power from Oklahoma. Right. So there was a, an issue and it was too contained is the problem. So it's, it's not the fact that if the whole thing becomes more interconnected, that one part going down is like a, a Christmas light bulb and the entire array goes down. No, it's, it's more the case that the more interconnected your grid is, the better it can support itself. Because right now, if something in the Western interconnection goes down, it's very difficult to get power from one of the Eastern interconnections over to it. Um, and then it's also worth noting that interconnections are made up of smaller microgrids in and of themselves so it's yeah it i've not seen that taken seriously as a problem in anything i've read yeah well i'm i'm glad you brought up the issue of uh you know the energy grid and it's needing to be uh you know basically national a national energy grid that makes a lot of sense you know i'm somebody who studies renewable energy um and as a result look a lot at these energy grids and it doesn't make sense you know in a in a world where we are you know uh, constantly transitioning more and more towards renewable energy, that we are not building a grid that is capable of supporting this renewable energy. Which brings me to my next issue, which I had with this whole uh, hullabaloo down in Texas, was that the governor, Dan Crenshaw, you know, a bunch of conservative pundits were coming out and saying, well, the reason that our power is out is because, you know, we can't rely on renewables. Renewables were, 
we're failing and that's why we're having these rolling blackouts. That's why you can't have the Green New Deal. That's why you got to stop building renewable energy when that just simply wasn't the case. What was happening was, sure, you had, you know, a few wind turbines freeze and that happened because they didn't de design them to be operable in freezing weather. You can easily make a wind turbine operate in freezing weather. Look at Alaska and Antarctica, for example. Um, but you had temperatures so cold that the infrastructure meant to uh, handle natural gas, the infrastructure meant to burn coal wasn't able to function. This is the fact that, you know, this is the times we live in where we have extreme weather events. And I'm going to say it, it's a result of climate change because you just would not expect this to happen anywhere else in any other, you know, natural or normal time. And you might say, well, why is, you know, a freezing cold snap with a blizzard happening when the world's supposed to be getting warmer? It's because weather patterns are getting so hot that they're disrupting things in the North Pole that's bringing the cold air down to the United States. I'm not going to get into the semantics of it because that's not what I'm here for. But um, yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought this to the more of the, the power grid aspect because that is something that definitely needs to be be changed in Texas. You know, these kinds of storms, these kinds of, uh, you know, weather events, whether they be blizzards or whether they be intense hurricanes or, you know, other, other things are going to get worse over time. And there needs to be uh, reliability in the energy grid. There needs to be regulation to ensure that this doesn't happen again, because there is no doubt people who died as a result of this. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to say that it's the fault of a, any certain politician in Texas, because it's just the result of a system that's been broken over time. Um, but there definitely needs to be reform. And I, I agree that there needs to be a more interconnected national grid so that we can evenly distribute this power and, uh, and move on uh, smart, uh, smartly from this. Uh, but that's kind of where I came down on this issue. I cared a lot more about the energy than any of the politics around it. I don't care what Ted Cruz really does. If he wants to go to Cancun, let him go to Cancun. You know, um, that's my thought. Any any responses? I think actually, okay. I, I do agree that it was in it was disingenuous the dialogue around, oh, it's the Green New Deal's fault that there were Texas outages. I, I don't know, Luke. I, I don't think even I don't think you took that seriously. None of my conservative friends who I know really no, took I that I, seriously. I definitely didn't. Yeah, I, but I do think that there is, there's, there's a small, tiny kernel of truth in that pile of kind of... But tech, so they kind of designed a system where it was never, it was, it was an entirely closed system and things fluctuated and they couldn't balance that fluctuation with the wider grid because of the design choice they had made so they, it was kind of setting themselves up for failure but there was like that tiny kernel truth of acknowledging the fact that it does fluctuate but the solution is so obvious yeah no you you, you make a good point there it's um like yeah i'm, I'm sure if you're you know a, a pretty standard you know reasonable person you don't blame the you know the green new deal or you don't blame solely renewables on this but you know there's a lot of people who will listen to you know anything their representative tells them and take it as you know take it as gospel so that just that frustrated me a little bit but yeah you make a good point there will um and for the sake of time because uh, we are going to wrap up a little short today um i did want to move on and talk about um things going on with russia because foreign policy is something we haven't talked about in a little while and will i know this is your wheelhouse so uh, i wanted to get your opinion on this now it might seem delayed but the Biden administration is poised to impose sanctions on Russia as punishment for the poisoning of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the likely state-sponsored hack of U.S. firm SolarWinds. Uh, it allowed hackers, presumably Russian operatives at that, access to several federal agencies, whether that be emails or other um, information um, 
and I don't know if they determined how deep that hack went. The move runs counter to the Trump administration's policy in Russia, on Russia, which is much more friendly uh, with our rival nation. And an official in the Biden administration said the sanctions are days or weeks away and that the Navalny-related sanctions will be in concert with the broader EU. So uh, what do we think of this new approach to U.S.-Russian relations by the Biden administration? And will it be an effective deterrent against future Russian aggression? And Will, since I know you are a big fan of foreign policy and international relations, I wanted to go to you first on this one. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that sanctions against the Russian officials responsible will totally change the course for Russia. I think that there's still an incredibly strong interest for Putin to publicly humiliate and put Alexei Navalny through this trial. But that's where it becomes interesting because, you know, five to 10 years ago, nobody, you know, the Russian government would not speak his name. They would not acknowledge, you know, the ex even the existence of opposition. And I think it definitely shows that they are kind of, that authoritarianism is on its back heels by the fact that they're acknowledging it and, you know, needing to put up this show of force. So, I mean, I do think it's, it's the correct move. I don't think that there's a silver bullet, you know, in terms of the U.S. exercising sanctions is going to stop Russia from poisoning opposition leaders. That's not going to do it, but it's an important piece of the puzzle. Um, but the bigger piece of the puzzle and something I didn't honestly benefits. There is anywhere that's close to a silver bullet that's going to hit the Putin and the Kremlin where it hurts. It would be strong U.S. opposition to Nord Stream 2, which I, I don't think is a terrible idea. But I, I did not honestly see that addressed from Blinken statements or anything from the State Department. So I, it's possible I missed something, but that, that's something I'm just curious. But it's also very possible that they're remaining intentionally vague about it because it would be a strong position to take that would also tick off Western Europe. So I, I've talked myself into a lack of conclusion. Uh, yeah, that's, I think that's a good point, Will. Um, Nord Stream 2 is something I'm not completely familiar with. I know it's a very important uh, economic piece of the puzzle for Russia and the EU. So I'm very interested to see what goes on with that, especially given that Russia has been doing a lot of bad behavior, I think, um, over the past you know year or so with you know boundaries on Russian troops, with the solar winds hack, with the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. There's a lot going on and a lot of reason for punishment to be uh, laid down. Um, but Luke, I wanna hear what you think. Um, you know, I, obviously, I think it's a good thing that we're taking kind of a harsher stance against Russia. Um, you know, I've, I've said it before on this show, and I'll say it again, they're not our friends, and they likely will not be for unless some kind of dramatic change happens. Um, all of that being said, uh, I really hope to see uh, uh, more, more bite uh, with this spark. You know, I think one of my criticisms of the Obama administration's handling of Russia was that they would kind of draw a line in the sand in Syria or say that they were going to do something and then not actually follow through on it. Mm -hmm. So um, I would like, to, I would hope to see that these economic sanctions, that they're backed up and that they're not just some kind of thing to say, well, at least we did something. You know, I, I'd like should have a little bit more teeth. I think it would really go a long way in showing uh, the world and Russia that you know, we mean business. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. Um, 
and I, I totally agree. I'm looking forward to a stance that's a lot more uh, tough on Russia to dissuade them from taking, you know, aggressive acts against the United States. Well, they might not be, you know, openly outwardly aggressive. They are still, you know, um, passive acts of aggression in a way um, that will, you know, that don't make us look good. And uh, they really just kind of show that, yeah, Russia's not our friend. Um, that being said, though, uh, we do need to wrap it up. Um, it might be a little bit shorter than usual, but uh, I have a commitment that I have to to be at. So um, thank you guys very much for joining me for this conversation. Always good to chat. For those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure to go to the bipartisanpost.com, take a look at new articles, and uh, follow along with the Bipartisan Post brand on Instagram and Twitter, at Post Bipartisan. Thank you very much, and we will see you next week.